and worship. We're so grateful for our dear brother Hayward and giving him such a deep love for your son, his word, his people, and he serves uh, tirelessly, Lord. And so we thank you for that. We do thank you for those at camp and Aaron and his ministry and all those who serve alongside him, Lord, as they minister to our youth, Lord. We ask that you'd bless their final session this morning and safe travels as they come home. But now here, we are left here, Lord. We want to learn more about you, and we turn to your word to do that. And we ask that you would open our minds and hearts and give us understanding, Lord, and particularly your love for the church. And, and you always raise men up, God. Let us see this, that are concerned with the church, and they're ready to go to the next city and the next place and the next group of people to find what you have for them, and they could preach the gospel to the next group. Lord, help us marvel at that. Help us not get comfortable, Lord. You need to bring changes often, Lord, so we don't get comfortable. And you bring us into a realm, Lord, where we desire to see what you're doing next and want to pursue those things. So, Lord, as we study this great book, may that uh, incite in us a desire to see what you're doing here and around Volusia County and, and Florida and the United States and around the world, Lord. This is a great missional effort that we're going to study this morning. Lord, do thank you for everyone that's here. We are grateful for them. We think also of those who can't. And so, Lord, I pray that many are watching online and others, Lord, as they just finish out their days waiting for you to take them, Lord. May they finish well for you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if your Bibles, please turn to 1 Thessalonians 1. We're just going to be there briefly, and then we're going to be in Acts 17, the passage Pastor Gary read. Because we need to understand how 1 Thessalonians came about and why it is such a pivotal book in our Bibles. I think many, when they think of the books of the letters of Thessalonica or to Thessalonica, they think they are books um, uh, probably remarkably about in times, and certainly they are, but there is a rich shepherding wisdom that comes out of this book. There is this apostle that absolutely loves this church and when we study these, we, we understand truth. And yes, we're going to see some eschatology in here, but you will see this dominated by uh, a pastor's passionate heart for a group of people. You can see it already when you just turn to this letter. You'll see in several references um, that will hit in more detail, but you'll see how he thinks of them and prays for them. He starts in verse 2 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, for this reason we constantly thank God that you received the word of God which you have heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God which is also performing its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. For, uh, for who is our hope or, or joy or crown or exaltation? exaltation? Is it not you? <laughs> this deep love for these people in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. For you are our joy, our glory and joy. Ver chapter 3, verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which we rejoice before God on your account? Chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it all towards, you practice it towards all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. We urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you are also doing. What encouraging verses to this group of people called the Thessalonica church. Well, as we turn to this first letter, um, it's important that we understand how we got here and, and how, how the apostle found them. And, and when we look at this, we find ourselves in the middle of Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. And, 
and, and it is fascinating to study. That's what we're going to do today. But he is going through Asia and Europe, and he is spreading the gospel of the Lord of Jesus Christ in great opposition, but God is rescuing souls and drawing people to himself. And what a joy to study this together. We believe that Paul stayed in Thessalonica probably somewhere between three to six months, more like the six months type of uh, uh, time frame, but he formed this lifetime relationship with him. He loved this church, and he was their first pastor. Now, the result of this visit has left the church with two very priceless, inspired letters that we learn all kinds of things from them. As we go through it, we'll learn evangelism, we'll learn church planning, uh, we'll learn what biblical shepherding looks like, we'll, look, we'll see what body life, how the church re- reflects Christ and responds to the word of God. You'll see a commitment to sound doctrine as well as a very prophetic look at the future. But what I love mostly about the first letter is its rich intimate insights between a godly pastor and his flock. Paul loves these people. And it comes out, and it's a teaching letter for myself, and I think it would be a teaching letter for the rest of us as well. So I think the theme that I have is a shepherd and his flock. And so look at First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. We'll just look at that, and then we'll move to Acts. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of, Thess- of the Thessalonians, in God the Father... In the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Well, how did he get here? Well, number one, let's look at our first point, historical background of Paul's second missionary journey. The historical background, and these are important to study. How did he get here, and why is he on this second missionary journey, and so forth? Well, we believe that this second missionary journey took place somewhere around 49 A.D. to 52 A.D., about a three-year trip in the Apostle Paul's life that he spent on this journey. And, of course, the book of Acts, our early church history book, and we study that to understand how these are going, that gives us this precious details of Paul's Journey. I want you to start with me in the first missionary journey, towards the end of it, to try to understand what's going on. Look at Acts chapter 14 with me. And you really need your Bible. I want you to get your finger in your Bible and kind of walk through this with me. This is precious remembrance of how God establishes this church on this earth. And he's still doing these same things. And we speak with our missionaries and church planners. We hear very similar stories, what God is doing, how he's awaking people, how faith is stirring their souls. And people are coming to faith and new churches are being planted both here and abroad. Well, if you look at Acts chapter 14, we are in the middle of his first journey, his first missionary journey. And, and here we find him in some very interesting things that are going on, very difficult things. Chapter, one, uh, chapter 14, verse 1, he's in Iconium there. And as is his custom, he, he enters the synagogue and he begins to teach. And the Bible says that numbers of people, both Jews and Greeks, were believing. But the Jews, verse 2, who disbelieved, they, dis- disbelieved him, they stirred everybody up. This is going to be a constant theme as he goes through. There, there are those who are agitated with him, both Jews and Greeks, who will stir up people against him. And it gets fairly deadly. He moves from Iconium and he goes in verse 6 and he moves to uh, uh, Lyconia and Lystra and Derbe. And we're going to see this in a minute on, on the map. I'll show you these areas. But there he preaches the gospel. And something happens very interesting. He's preaching the gospel. And in verse 8, he's there preaching away. Verse 7, he's preaching the gospel. In verse 8, there he is. In the middle of it, he spots a man who is a, probably a, a paraplegic of some sort. Pro- probably from birth, it says, from his mother's womb here. And while he's listening, Paul's preaching. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke. But Paul puts his gaze on him and says, hey, I think God wants me to heal this guy. So in verse 10, he tells him to stand up on his feet. The crowd goes absolutely crazy. And they begin to think that he and and Barnabas are gods. And they begin to want to worship them. They call Barnabas, verse 12, Zeus and Paul, Hermes, um, the priest of the Zeus comes out. And they bring out all these festive things. And they're going to have a festival and celebrate these two gods that were in human form, but verse 14, Paul and Barnabas will have no part of that. Notice they tear their clothes and they cry out, you're crazy, we're men like you. We're the same nature. And we're here to preach the gospel. That's what we're here to do. 
this unashamedness, when you read uh, Romans chapter 1, verse, one, chapter 1, verse 16, he says he's unashamed of the gospel. Here, if there's any way he, he could ever be a great man in the presence of the world would have been here. They think he's a god. But he rejects that and says, we're here to preach the gospel to you. And to help you turn from these vain things, these idols, much what uh, Josh started us off with, with our call to worship. Turn from those things and turn to the living God. Now, he went on to tell them this is what God's plan was for the nations. And he, and he turned to them and pleaded with them. But look in verse 19. Here's where things get very difficult. The Jews from Antioch and Iconium. Now, this group's been tailing him and Barnabas all the way through this journey, causing incredible problems. While he's preaching to them, they're working the crowd over, and he turns the crowd to thinking he was God at one time, a God at one time, to now notice in verse 19, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he'd be dead. I mean, how is that of a turn of events? Oh, you're a God. A few minutes later, you're under a pile of stones. This is... This is what he dealt with. This is how difficult this job was. Notice they thought he was dead, so they left them there. Verse 20, his disciples stood around him. I, I just really want to talk to them about this. What were you thinking? And he got up. Verse 20. And he entered the city. And the next day. <laughs> now, let's just stop there. If a, pilot, a book of people come out and pile stones on you and throw them at you, I'm not sure they're going to probably let you out of the ER next day, the next day. He's in there preaching the gospel. Notice this in verse 21. After that, he had preached the gospel to the city and had many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Wait a minute. That's where the people just came from. This guy is nuts. He's either a lunatic or he's so concentrated on bringing the life-saving message of the gospel, he does not care about life or limb. He wants people to know Jesus. And he's willing to lay his life down for that. Verse 22, he was a great preacher, wasn't he? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. This is what he's going back through these places he had just come from. And saying, though, but he wants them to understand that this gospel message isn't some health, wealth, and prosperity message. He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's such a farce what people teach now that they call the gospel. You want to follow Jesus? It might cost you everything. Cost Paul everything. And here he was honest with them of the difficulties of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, when he had appointed elders for them in every church. Isn't that interesting? He did not want to leave these churches without leadership. Remember, this is a missionary journey. This isn't some, well, let's go on, preach a little bit, and move on. This is building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So him and Barnabas and these other men and women that were following with him and helping him, they're pouring into the young men in this church, causing them to think about what God's calling as their life. And the result of it, they have elders in every church now caring and shepherding and protecting. And then having prayed with fasting, they commend them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What a precious teaching of this churches that are being planted. They passed through uh, Poseida and Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalea. I want to have a map here. I think we're about ready to put up here. Um, uh, so that you understand where he's come from. We're still on the first missionary journey. It was commissioned out of Jerusalem. Antioch would have been another home church. We'll get into them in just a few minutes here. Made his way up to Tarsus where he was from. Here is where he ran into all of the trouble. He's preaching here, and this is where he gets stoned and left for dead. He turns and comes down here. He preaches at all these churches, Pamphylia and so forth, and in here, and then gets on a boat and sails back to Antioch and eventually back to Jerusalem um, is where we're at in the story now. Verse 25, when they had spoken the word of Imperga and Atalea, they sailed to Antioch, for which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they arrived, this is interesting, because right, verse 26 is really the completion of the first missionary journey. He's finished that first journey. 
And, and I just want you to think about a minute. When we go back and study I just showed you some small details. Of, when you go back and study it, how they came staggering in probably physically from this trip, uh, I don't think the scriptures tell us enough. They were beat up. They've been chased from town to town. They've been chased by women that didn't like their message, prominent women. They were chased by Jews, run out by Greeks and pagan worshipers. And finally, they've come back home to their home church. And they arrived in Antioch. And when they had arrived, verse 27, they gathered the church together and they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And I think that's so interesting, brothers and sisters. Nowhere in there did they say, oh yeah, we were stoned to death, ran out of town, had to hide, had to be lowered down over you know, a wall. All, he doesn't get into any of that. He says, I want to tell you how God is opening the doors of faith with the Gentiles. And notice in verse 28, they spent a long time with the disciples. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how long they were there, but they recouped and they were encouraged and cared for. Now, while they're there, some events happen. And these are challenging events. And I want to think about a missionary coming home from the field, been out there seeing God do amazing things, and you come home to a church that has some problems. This is why we have to work hard that we have a church where our missionaries come home to where they have a place to heal up and to be loved on and cared for. But notice what happens in chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Now, Jerusalem is always up. So even though they say come down, Jerusalem was built on a hill, so they always talk about it going down. So even though they were in Antioch, these men that this verse says, they're coming from Jerusalem and they're coming to Antioch here at this church here. And notice these men came down from Judea and began to teach the brethren, use, uh, uh, unless, here's what they're teaching them, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, now look at this phrase, you cannot be saved. Now this is allowed in the church. Somehow this gets in the church. These men are there, whether they're, whether they're mingling outside of the church a gathering or whatever. The Bible doesn't tell us, but hear what we know. They're teaching that unless you have this event done to you, this circumcision done to you, you cannot be saved. Now, notice verse 2. When Paul and Barnabas had had a great dissension and debate with them, this got heated. And it should. Anytime something comes along and it's Christ plus something, we should get excited about that because it's deadly. It's deadly to the souls of those who might be contemplating Christ plus something. And the brethren there, after this great debate that happens, the brothers determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others should go up to Jerusalem. Remember that up is always Jerusalem. To the apostles and the elders concerning the issue. Therefore, they sent on their way by the church, and they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, and describing in detail conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So on the way from Antioch to Jerusalem, they're stopping in Phoenicia and Samaria, and all the churches that they're involved where, because there's a lot of church planning going on this time in the Bible. And every time they're just stopping there, they got a job to do, but on the way they're going to encourage churches. I don't know if you travel and what you do on Sundays when you're gone, but you should probably stop at a church and encourage them somewhere. I think sometimes our vacations are like, oh, I don't have to go to church. No, no. Find a church somewhere. We see it all the time here. People come up and goes, hey, pastor, we're just here on vacation. We found your church online. Just want to tell you how grateful for we are come to hear the preaching of the word. Man, does that encourage my soul. When someone on vacation, instead of taking a few hours of laying on the beach, they come here. And this is what they did. These were men of God. They found themselves with God's people continually. Verse 4, when they arrived to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. So here's kind of the hub. The early church was in Jerusalem. This is where Peter and James were. This was the, the, the sending out of everything, the hub of Christianity was taking place here, and they were going to Samaria and Judea and to the, inner, the remotest parts of the world from there. Now, verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed stood up. Now, there's some important words here. This word believe, I got it marked in my Bible here. These certain sects of the Pharisees, they said it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to the observe the law of Moses. Now, this is 
somewhat similar. And the first was these folks at Antioch. They were saying they have to be circumcised or they can't be saved. Here we have a sect of Pharisees who say, who believe, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they say, look, it's necessary to be circumcised and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now we want to think through this just a moment. Christianity is brand new. We're talking 15 years roughly from the death of Christ and his resurrection. The most people who know about God are the Jews. They have 2,000 years of a history with God. And they have a law that they, they strove to keep and misuse it often. But, but they're coming at this and believing that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah. But they're working through this. And so I think the second group's a little different. And, and quite possibly, maybe they're concerned about the missional effort. They know that Paul's been going to synagogue after synagogue after synagogue, and they're thinking, look, if you're going to take guys like Timothy in and you don't circumcise them, you're never going to reach them because that's going to be a huge no-no in their eyes. And so they're possibly here that this is an, an effort to say, wait a minute, we need to think through this. Now, doubtlessly, there's legalism that always creeps in when humans are involved. But, but at the same time, we can't add to what Christ has done. And so this causes us to stop here. And so now, verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together and they looked into this matter. Same matters happened up in Antioch. Now it's in Jerusalem. They've got to figure this out. Now, after, there was great or much debate here. The Bible says in verse 7, guess who stands up? Peter, the spokesman of the disciples, still a ruling elder within the Jerusalem church stood up and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's Acts chapter 10, right? Angel comes to him, lowers the meat, and you need to eat these things are clean and all of that and sends them to the Gentiles. And he begins preaching there. Verse 8, and God who knows the heart, I love those little phrases that are dropped in there, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. Now, that's the mark of salvation. Look, you can't be saved and not have the Holy Spirit. And you can't have the Holy Spirit and not be saved. <laughs> right? And especially in a New Testament time frame, right? That, that's the marking, the identification of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. He marks us and, and we are uh, forever endowed with the Lord himself, God himself, in his spirit residing within us. And then verse 9, and he made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. That is salvation. Your heart is clean now. You have a right standing before God. He's making a bold claim that these Gentiles are saved. Verse 10, now therefore, why do we put God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke? Now look, look at how honest this is which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We don't even keep the law perfectly. In fact, Wednesday, we're going to have a missionary with us. We're going to, um, Joshua, going to be on the stage with her, um, Patty Parks, and we're going to talk with her. And then I'm going to get into faith and the law and all of that um, because this is, this is the verse I'm going to bounce it off. Because what happens is they had a wrong use of the law. So Peter's trying to understand him, help him understand this, verse 11. But we believe and we are saved, not through the law is what he's saying, through grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they also are. They're coming to the Father through Christ alone. That's what he's saying, just like we did. Praise the Lord. Verse 12, all the people kept silent. I mean, Peter's preaching here, right? I mean, here, he, you know, he's, he's talking about true salvation, Christ alone salvation, no other stuff. And they're all listening in, including this sect of Pharisees that are struggling with um, circumcision and, and law and so forth. Everyone's listening. And it says they listened to Barnabas and to Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So maybe at first they said, well, yeah, okay. Some of, these, some of these Gentiles are getting saved. And then Paul says, well, I need to tell you another bit of information. Not only do they have the Holy Spirit, not only are they receiving salvation through Christ alone, but God is doing miraculous events of them. And they're going, wait a minute. That's our God who split the seas and we walked through. That's our God who rained manna from heaven. 
Now he's doing signs and wonders among the Greeks, among the Gentiles. And so what happens is both Peter and Barnabas and Paul are showing evidence that God is saving Gentiles. And this is such good news for us. This was not just for the Jews. God was now spreading his light among all nations, drawing people from every walk of life. James gets into this, verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James answers. Now, so now you got Peter and James. John is not in here, but he could have been here. I'm not sure where he's at this point. Um, but now you have the inner circle leaning into this, saying, brother, listen to me, Simon. Now, I think that's a personal relationship he has with Peter. He doesn't call him Peter here. Earlier the text referred to Peter, but he's Simon. This is a, this is a man who walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Simon. And he's related to you how God first concerning himself about taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. And then he brings what the prophets say. And he turns to Amos chapter 9 is really his main text. But he ties in allusions to Jeremiah and Deuteronomy and several allusions in Isaiah chapter 63 and 45 and Daniel 9 and so forth. There's a little complication of, of passages there that all relate to the scriptures of the promise that God was going to call Gentiles. And then verse 19, he says, therefore, it is my judgment. You've got to remember, you've got James and Peter. These are the head of the church in a sense. They're the elders overseeing this. This is of our judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from the Gentiles, but that we write to them. Let's take time and let's, let's as a group communicate to them. And let's, here's what we need to con- communicate to them that they should abstain from things contaminated by idols. Well, that's really good, because that's really going to confuse people. That you believe in Jesus, and you're hanging around with the church, but then you're still going to these festivals, much like we saw in Corinth, and hanging out with those people and eating meat sacrificed, and, and there's no distinction between you as a Christ follower and those as pagans. He said, if you really know Christ, you should abstain from those things. And then from fornication. Well, fornication came with the pagan religions. All of the religions worshipped God and had immoral behavior, worshipped their gods and had immoral behavior connected to it. And then finally he says, stay away from the blood. Well, why is that? Because the pagans drank the blood of the animals they strangled. And then they would drink that blood in order to get the life out of that to make them more powerful and take the life of swift animals or strong animals. He said that would, that, that's not good for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, he refers to Moses and the ancient generation has in every city those who preach him. Moses is being read so, so the word is being preached since he is read in the, in the synagogues every Sabbath. And then it seems good to the apostles and elders with the whole church. They all have conclusion of this. And they chose these men from among them, sent them to Antioch, Barnabas and Bar, uh, Paul and Barnabas, along with Judas, who was Paul, Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent them. And they wrote this letter 23 through 29. Now, Judas and Silas were men from Jerusalem. They were godly leaders, possibly elders there. They sent them to say, this isn't just Paul and Barnabas coming back to tell you. We're sending our own elders to tell you. And notice in verse 29, we see the same thing again. Verse 28, don't put a greater burden on them. Verse 29, abstain from sacrifice, uh, things sacrificed to idols, from the blood, things that were strangled, and fornication. Keep yourself free of such things, and you will do well. And so they made this ruling, and Paul's involved in this. This is all on his uh, furlough. <laughs> this is all in his time between um, being stoned and preaching the gospel and, and, and run out of cities. All between all of that, he's home dealing with these things so the gospel gets right before he gets sent out. And again, we begin to see that happen. Look at verse 30. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch. Now, again, we have a map here. So this is all taking place. In Jerusalem, if I can get this to work, my battery died. Maybe. You see Jerusalem, they're going to go up to Antioch, and they're going to teach all those things. Hmm. There we go. All right. Now, verse 
30. And they gathered with the congregation and, and they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, look at this, I love this. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. You know, it is encouraging when you tell people all you need is Jesus Christ. You, you don't need all that stuff. I, uh, I think it's one of the reasons I love witnessing to Catholics and other people who are caught in Christ plus something. You can tell them they can be free. They can know the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have to be attached to all of these things. And these people were rejoicing. We don't have to go through all this stuff to gain what we already believe. Notice in verse 32, Judas and Silas, also being prophets with them, encouraged and strengthened the brethren, and I like this, with lengthy messages. See, the church believed in putting themselves under the word of God. They were not there for social events, although they were a family and they loved one another and broke bread together. They were there to be under the word of God. In a matter of hours after that, they were going to go right back into the world and some most difficult things. They would be back into that. And so they spent time in the word together. And it wasn't just Paul who preached lengthy ones. These elders also preached as well. Verse 33, after they had spent time there, they, they sent away from the brethren to, in peace to those who had been sent out. Verse 34 is probably a scribal um, addition here, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. It means Judas went back to Jerusalem, but Silas stayed there. And they really didn't need to put that in our Bibles because it tells us um, down in verse 40 that that's what he did. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others the word of the Lord. So they're on furlough and they're preaching the gospel, battling for Christ alone. You've got to love these men. Now, after all that happens, verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, guess what? Let's return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. I don't know what Barnabas' response was, but it could have been this. What? <laughs> they tried to kill you there, and you want to go back? I don't think that was his response. I think Barnabas was dedicated to the gospel as much. But when I read this, I thought, oh, you're going to go back there. You're going to go back where people did everything in their power to kill you. You've got to be a man who is so set to preach the gospel. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. John called Mark along with him. And there's problems that happen within leadership from times, and this is one of those. I won't linger on this, but look at verse 38 with me. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them with the work. If you look at our map, they were up here, and this is where Paul got stoned and almost left for dead. They, they, were, they were battered in all of these cities, every one of these cities. They made their way down here to Perga, and they... They had more problems there, and then they got on a ship and sailed around and came here, and that ended the first journey. It was in this area, someone, maybe probably from the response that John Mark saw in Lystra, what happened to Paul there, that was where he probably left them. And Paul said, if you're not here to go through what we go through for the gospel, I don't want you. <laughs> it's a pretty tough call on him. Paul was dead set. He did not want people who would look back. And this caused, a, notice in verse 39, it caused a sharp disagreement. And there they separated, and Barnabas took Mark with him, and he sailed to Cyprus. Now let me just say a few words. John Mark figures things out, and later, of course, writes the book of Luke, um, uh, excuse me, the book of Mark, based on his relationship with Peter. Uh, it's, it's an interesting study when you follow John Mark, and later when Paul is in his final imprisonment. He calls for John Mark to be with him. Verse 40, Paul took Silas and left, being committed to the brethren, to the grace of the Lord. And he traveled through Syria and Sicilia and strengthening the churches. So here we're starting now the second missionary journey. They came home, went down to Jerusalem, came back here, got sent back out. And they're headed right back to where they were. Now, Paul, verse six, chapter 16, verse 1, Paul came to Derby and Lystra. You see that up on there? And the disciples there, there was a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. What's interesting about Timothy, and we'll look a little more at this next week as we get into the letter, because Paul, Paul uh, Silas, and Timothy are on the head of that letter. 
this man was already serving. When you find men who are ready to, to serve the Lord in the church, you'll find them already serving, and I'm going to point that out more next week. He's already serving, and he's well-spoken of. He's well-spoken of in Lystra and Iconium. He's not like John Mark that fled when the pressure came. He was there serving and ministering already, and Paul, verse 3, wants this man to go with him. And he took him, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now, that's a very interesting. They just said that they don't have to do all this outward stuff to stay away from strangled things and blood and so forth. But here Paul says, look, Timothy, you didn't trust me. I'm going to lead you through something. I want you to do something that's going to be hard as a, an adult. But we don't want to be a stumbling block because the first thing we do in every city is we head for the synagogues. And they know who your father is. Timothy submitted to this. He was a godly man and becomes a right-hand man to, to Paul for many, many years. Verse 4, now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for, they, uh, for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in faith and were increasing in number daily. So they're saying, here's what James and here's what Peter and here's, here's what the elders of Jerusalem and Antioch are saying. Here's what you have to do. You don't have to have all that stuff. You can just put your life fully in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the churches are exploding. They're being strengthened and they're growing. And then they start to pass through Phrygian and Galilee re region. And this is all this area. After he leaves here, he's going all through here. This would be known as northern Galatia. This would be known as the southern Galatia here. And now he's making his way up through there. He probably determined to go into Asia. He wanted to be there. But notice the Bible says in verse 6, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Isn't that interesting? God shut him up and said, you're not going to preach there. Now, there are some things that I want you to think about. When you read 1 Peter chapter 1, it says to the churches that are scattered, and it lists all these churches, uh, Bithynia, Pontus, Cappadocia, all of those are up in this region. So Peter and his group gets to this, gets to this region later. And they're all there later on when Peter says, look, to the churches that are scattered. But God, for some reason, did not want him going there. He had that reserve for another time. Verse 7, and after they came to Mysa, they were trying to go to Bithynia. That's the northern part. And the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And they passed through Mysa, and they came to Troas. So now we're in the middle of his second journey, and that's where they're landed right here. Follow me to verse Nine, this is a fascinating passage. Paul wanted to go to northern Asia there. He wanted to go to the Bithynia and so forth, but God wouldn't let him. And soon as he obeys him and goes to Troas, a vision appears to Paul in the night. Now remember, we don't have a completed scriptures. God's still speaking in these miraculous ways. The scriptures are miraculous themselves, but he's speaking and leading in these miraculous ways. A man of... Macedonia was standing and appealing him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, Macedonia is Philippi and Thessalonica. That's the churches that we have there. And, and it's interesting, you can read on this man of Macedonia. Was there actually a man that he went and met? Or was that man representing a group of people that God was sending him there that he was already predetermined to save? And Paul wanted to go to Bithynia and Cappadocia and some of those areas. But God had already determined the time and the place where he was going to save. And Paul obeyed. And instead of going his own ways, says, okay. And he goes to Troas. There he has the vision. That makes him go to Philip in Thessalonica, and now we have letters written to them. Isn't that fascinating? How many times do we want to do our own thing? We want to do what we think God wants us to do, or we've made up our mind, and we've not listened to him. We've not done our study in the word. We've not done our prayer and talked to him and allowed him to lead us, and we miss what God has. And, I, and I, as I read this and was studying through this, I said, oh, Lord, I'm so thankful for Paul's desire to obey you. Verse 10 and when he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia. If God is calling you to go somewhere, brothers and sisters, go. He's going to do something phenomenal. Listen to him uh, and, and go. And so he does that. And he concluded that God had called him to preach the gospel to them. He didn't call me to go to Bithynia and Cappadocia 
and Pontius at this moment. He's called me here. So putting out to sea from Troas, he ran straight course to Samothrace on the following day into Napolis. And from there to Philippi, which was the leading city, the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. The we is to remind us that Luke's writing this, so Luke is with them as well. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a river where we were supposed, supposing that there would be a place of prayer. There's no synagogue there. We're trying to find somewhere where people are gathering. And we sat down and we began to speak to a woman who had assembled. Now, now they made it all the way to Philippi. And they're sitting there. This is another port, close to a port city and very populated. And guess who they meet? Lydia. Lydia is the first convert. I'm going to skip through this next session. But she's a fascinating woman. She's a worshiper of God in verse 14. And in the latter part of verse 14, the Lord opens her heart and she gets saved. So she's this God-fearing person, but she's not saved. There's a lot of people like that in America. They believe there's a God and a higher power and they believe in all that, but they do not know God through Jesus Christ. And there these men preach the gospel to her. She's saved. She's the, her and her whole household. This is the start of the Philippi church. Everything's going great. Hey, we got a church. This is God is calling us. We met this woman. Her whole house gets saved. Everything's going great. And then all of a sudden, here comes Satan trying to crash the party. You remember this? There's two men. They have a slave girl who's demonic. And she's crying out and saying, oh, these men are men of God. And she's making all these claims that all sound good. But there is no way Paul is going to allow demonic forces to proclaim truth. And he will not have anything to do with it. He casts the woman out. They lose their fortune because this woman's raking in money for them. And they get mad. They can't tell, they can't tell people what they were doing with her because that would have been terrible. Instead, they say, these men, verse 20, are throwing our city into confusion. And they're constantly teaching that there's another king besides our king. And they call him King Jesus, verse 21. This leads to some t- difficult things. Verse 22, the crowd comes up. They rip the robes off. They beat them with rods. Verse 23, they, they struck them many times, the Bible says. They threw them into prison, commanded a jailer to secure them. And they were locked in there. Their, their feet were put into stocks and they're in an inner prison. Well, there went the good church planting vibes. And everything was going so good. We got here, the Lord had given me a vision. I got to Philippi. We meet this gal. She gets saved. Her whole family goes. We, we have no idea how, actually how many more people get, get, in, get saved in this. But the church is going. It's starting to happen. And all of a sudden, all I'm doing there is trying to not let this demonic force have its way. And next thing I know, I'm in prison and I'm beat, me and Silas. But that doesn't stop them, does it? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns and praise to God. The prisoners were listening. And you know what happens? The earthquake comes. The doors are open. The chains fall off them. The jailer says, I'm a Roman guard. If I lose my prisoner, they kill me, so I'm just going to kill myself. Paul says, stop. Don't harm yourself. Bring in the light. And this man was listening to the singing and prayers of godly men. And he says, what must I do to be saved? You know the rest of the story. He believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is saved his whole household comes to faith and are baptized. And then they're brought back to the jail. Because Paul says, I'm not going to let you take your life. We're going back into the jail. The next day, the chief magistrates bring him out. <laughs> and there's a big problem. You beat two Roman citizens. You didn't give them fair trial. And they're in a lot of trouble. And they want them to go. And brothers and sisters, through all of this, there's a church now planted in Philippi from a woman named Lydia and a jailer, a Roman jailer. And now there's a church in Philippi, and it came with a lot of hardship. But it's there. And that leads them to depart, verse 40, and they come to Thessalonica. The Bible says in chapter 17, verse 1, that they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollyana, Apollyana, I struggle with this one, Apollyana, And there they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue. So up in this, here is, they travel from there to uh, Amphipolis, which was about 30 to 35 miles. They're walking on the Aegean Road. 
Then they walk another 30 to 35, and they, call, they come to Apollonia, and they stop there, and they're there for who knows how long. We, we don't know. And then they walk another 30, 30 to 35 miles, and they come to Thessalonica, and that's where we find them here in, in Acts chapter 17. You'll notice it was Paul's custom, this band of courageous ambassadors. They arrive, and they immediately find the synagogue in verse 1. Paul and his companions, they left Philippi. <laughs> um, they're, again, they're beat up. And they've come and they've located um, this, this city and, and the synagogue. And, and Thessalonica is this very central uh, city. It's very prosperous. It's got a commerce center. It's right on the road of the Aegean Road. And, and all commerce goes through this. And it connects to the Appian Way that goes down to Italy and eventually to Rome. And so here they are now. And number two, Lord, as we look at this, we'll just end with this one. Um, the birth of a Thessalonica church. Here they are. They've made it. And now they have traveled this hundred miles. Who knows how long they stayed. They've arrived in the seaport city. And, and now they're there. Um, I was looking on a map. If you look at Thessalonica, it's modern-day Slovenia. Um, to, to the right of that, you would, oop, lost the map. Uh, to, the, to the right of that, this is Slovenia here, Croatia, Bosnia. Um, Greece works its way down through here. Um, all these modern-day cities are there. Uh, Yugoslavia, uh, Turkey back towards Taurus and, and uh, so forth. They're in that area. There, now the gospel is being spread to places that had never been before. And Rome had paved these roads for them to be there. Notice in verse 2, it says, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them of the scriptures. For three Sabbaths. As soon as Paul arrives there, his custom is ahead and speak the gospel. And, and he declares, and, and notice what he's doing. He's, he's there speaking from the scriptures. Verse 3, he's explaining and giving evidence that Christ had suffered and rose again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And so our, our apostle is there. He's three Sabbaths, at least 15 days, preaching that the promised one of the Old Testament was the Lord Jesus Christ. And you notice he says he preached from the scriptures in verse 2. Not just mere facts. He's not just telling some things he knows. He's there from the Old Testament persuading the Jews through his reasoning and explaining the word of God. And I would imagine that Paul probably tied his own testimony in it. But I got thinking about and I, and I looked back through many of his sermons and I found, at least found these. He preached out of Psalms 2. He preached Christ out of Psalms 2. He certainly preached Christ out of Isaiah 53. He preached Christ out of Psalm 16. He preached Christ out of Psalms 22. He preached Christ out of Psalms 100. And there are many other references that he refers to because that's all he had was the Old Testament to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Notice in verse 4 that some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. This, this is the church starting to form, right? There's, there's a forming going on. There's people coming to faith. Now, it seems like there's a gap between four and five, some time that must have happened here. But look at verse four, five. But the Jews, becoming jealous, and taking some wicked men from the market, formed a mob and set the city aroar, a, a and attacking the house of Jake, Jason, and they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Well, obviously, after three Sabbaths of instruction in the synagogue, Paul had turned to the Gentiles, as he'd done in many places. And we see that, and we'll, we'll see that in the first first uh, passage in First Thessalonians, where he's just praising the Lord because they turned from the idols. I think Josh referenced that in his call to worship. They turn from these idols. And so now you have these Gentiles and, and he's there preaching to them. And, and it's so hard. I said, Lord, how long was he there? And I read and read and read. And most theologians think he was there at least six months. And we began to think about, well, how, come he, how was he there that long? Well, one, he, he was long there, long there long enough to receive a letter from the Philippian church. The, why he's there. So whatever that took to write that letter and all the things that were going on there, he receives a letter. From them, he's there long enough to know that the Bible says that he had to work day and night to support himself. 
2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 2 Thessalonians 3, 8. Third, he, he was there long enough to shepherd the church through the depth of ministry. We'll see in chapter 2 that he dealt with ministry issues. He had to help them work through that. And then fourth, we see this great progression of sanctification of these people in Thessalonica. So we realize he is there for quite some time. But with that said, after those three Sabbath teachings, Paul started his ministry to the Gentiles, and it drove them to jealousy. And look at what happens. They become jealous. And notice what they do. They take along some wicked men from the marketplace, form a mob. Here we go again. So you want to be a church planner. You, you want to be a missionary. When you preach Christ, look at the opposition that comes. They form a mob. They set the city on a roar. They attack the house of Jason. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly all that happens, but this tactic is still used today, right? Evil men, they find wicked men or women and, and whose conscience are seared, and they, they feed them stuff, and they send them out to destroy people's res- reputations. We see it happen all the time. The Bible tells us they found these men in the marketplace. I don't know what they were doing. They certainly weren't working. And so they probably paid them, and they create this mob. Notice verse 6 through 8. When they did not find them, that's Paul and Silas and the group, they began dragging poor Jason out. And some brethren before the city authorities, this would have been five men who were a council that would have been under the government, um, they and brought them before him, and he said, this are the charges. These men have upset the world and have come to us also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all are contrary to the c- decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. Now, what's fascinating is Paul had been staying at Jason's house. He was a Gentile conversion. He'd come to know faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and their goals were not necessarily them. Their goals were to get Paul and Silas. And, and yet they dragged them out. And, and look what they're charging him. These men have upset the world. They're charging him with revolutionary crimes. They're calling them, in a sense, insurrectionists. Um, men that are committing treason against Rome. And yet, in some cases, they were right. And that's what we're going to see as we go into the book of Thessalonians, is you're going to see that Paul preaches a gospel that's so radical. And if you don't buy in that it's only through Jesus Christ alone, you're going to have to set yourself against it. And so many people did. And as we see, as we go down through verse after verse, we'll begin to realize that there was a group of people who said, our faith is in Jesus alone. He changed our lives. We were pagans. We worshiped idols. We bowed down before them. We did everything that came with them. We strangled animals, drank their blood, had all full of immorality. Our lives were full of those things. But we turned from that to the living God. And that is the birth of Thessalonica Church. It came through great hardship, and it came through men, and doubtlessly women who were traveling with the Apostle Paul and Silas, who were committed to the gospel. That's what it takes to plant churches. It takes people who are committed to the gospel. It takes people who are committed to say, I'll go where somebody else won't go. It may cost me. It may cost me physically, certainly um, uh, financially. It's going to cost me. But God's not going to send me alone because he's going to find other people who say, I'll go with you. And then churches are birthed. The same thing happens today. Father, we run out of time today and we... Thank you for what we have learned. We enjoy walking through these precious verses here, Lord, of these missionary journeys. It's a reminder of how we got here. The gospel did not stop in Philippi or Thessalonica. The gospel kept going. And eventually the gospel came in a boat over the seas and came to America. And men fought for the freedom to hold to its truths. And it worked its way down the East Coast and men rode on horsebacks from city to city or village to village proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and Lord, as you always promise, when you lift up Jesus Christ, you gather people to yourselves and you did that, Lord. And here, years later, there's a church, in fact, many churches who faithfully preach the word of God in Florida. But it takes men, women, families, 
who are committed to the planning of churches. Stepping out on faith and going to places where no one else will go. Or where there's a desperate need for the truth to be preached. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to raise up missionaries and church planners from Riverbend. That as we just read this story, Lord, we spent our time just walking through the stories of these missionary journeys. Lord, I pray it sparks interest in people. They would want to be part of something, whether that's giving, helping, going. Lord, lay it on their hearts. We should be part of this calling, Lord. Lord, thank you for Apostle Paul and his example to us. But we thank you that he was sold out to Jesus Christ. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Amen. Church, why don't you stand as we uh, respond in worship. And Lord, I come, I confess Thou will here, I find my rest And without you, I fall apart You're the one that guides my Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. In every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh, God, how I need you. Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. And where you song to rise to you when temptation comes my way when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus you're my hope and stay when I cannot stand I'll fall on you Jesus, you're my hope and stay. And Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, Let's go one more time, church. And Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. And every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Amen. Lord, I want to thank you for whoever it was who came to Florida and preached the gospel. I want to thank you for the men and women that started what 
turned out to be Riverbend Community Church. Someone came with a goal to plant a church in this area. Believed that God had called them. And the result, Lord, is not only just Riverbend, but many other churches. Many other faithful churches preaching the gospel. And then from Riverbend, we have so many men that have gone out and planted new churches and taken new churches. And so, Lord, we thank you for the model we find in the Scriptures. Men sent by God, called to praise Christ, Christ plus nothing else. And, Lord, you blessed it. It came through trials and tribulations. It wasn't easy. It took a lot of self-sacrifice. And it still does today, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be a church that would continue to church plant, continue to support church plants, missions around the world, Lord. You're not done. You haven't returned. There are more souls to win for you. There's more messages of Christ to be preached. Lord, I pray that we would all participate in these things. And we pray this for your glory, Lord, and certainly for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.